0: This message by Stamshin entitled The Power of Contentment was recorded at Wellspring Church on May 19, 2019. The text for this message is Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. This morning's scripture reading will come from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. So far, the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. So we are back in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, and again, perhaps one of the most difficult things to do as a human being is to be content. And uh as I shared last week, verse 13 is one of the most misused verses in all of the Bible because people tend to think it's about finishing marathons or being able to get a 1600 on this AT, or to be able to attain great feats of climbing Everest, or whatever it might be. But verse 13, which we will focus on primarily today, is all about contentment. And if you understand, and I hope you do from last week, how hard it is to be content in all circumstances, you know why we need God's power to be content. want to give you a a story by Gary Thomas, who wrote a book called Authentic Faith. And he was telling about the time that he went to Knott's Berry Farm with his family, which I'm sure most of us can appreciate. And he said, when we visited Knott's Berry Farm, an amusement park with a frontier theme, there were virtually no lines. And we went easily from major attraction to major attraction, in many cases walking right on. If the kids really enjoyed the ride, they stayed on and rode again. My then six-year-old daughter, Kelsey, was having the time of her life. After about three hours, however, I noticed something curious. She jumped off some little cars. She had ridden a train, a log ride, a Ferris wheel, a flying school bus, you name it. Her words, however, revealed a spirit that was getting more hungry, not less. What's next? she asked, with a slightly desperate edge to her voice. That's when I realized there's never quite enough excitement to quiet the human heart. We'll never have as much excitement as we want. And this has been true from the beginning of time. St. Augustine described it this way, Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. And again, last week we talked a lot about the struggle for contentment in our hearts. It really is the what's next heart. We are looking to be satisfied in something that will make us eternally happy. But when we pursue that satisfaction in other things besides Christ, we will never be satisfied. We'll always have that what's next heart. So Paul gives us the opportunity and the answer to how we can be satisfied, how we can be content, that it is possible even in this world, but it is to understand the fullness of Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, this most powerful and most quoted text. And in it, we'll look at three characteristics of this verse. First, the extent of contentment. Secondly, the effect of contentment. And then third, the power of contentment. So we'll look first at the extent of contentment. The extent of contentment, in this verse, is regarding everything. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Contentment is possible in all circumstances, whether you are abundantly experiencing all sorts of pleasures and your heart's delights, or whether you're empty and dissatisfied. It is possible to experience contentment. But apart from Christ, it is not possible. In fact, one thing we know is that when we are pursuing our own satisfaction apart from Jesus, it is possible to do that even in the church, even sounding Christian, but in actuality still not finding it. If we doubt that, all we need to do is look at the disciples. They were around Jesus 24-7 for three years And you know, they were never really satisfied, even with Jesus right there. listen to the struggle that they had in Luke 9, 46. If you can recall this argument, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. And that's comical, isn't it? Whenever I read that, I always have to laugh because I think, how could you be arguing about who is the greatest with Jesus right by your side? See, the disciples... They weren't even content with Jesus around. They felt as though they deserved better. They wanted to be in a higher position. They weren't weaker than us in contentment. They were very much like us. Here's the problem with discontentment, with covetousness. It makes you anxious. It's frustrating. It makes you feel envy. It makes you angry and miserable. There are all sorts of outcroppings of this. Let's take, for example, the midlife crisis. I shared last week, it was uh, geared a lot to the women for Mother's Day, but this week, men. Men and women both face midlife crises. We do it in different ways, but we both have it. And when you reach sort of that midway point in your life where you think, okay, I have the, the toddlers that you raise, suddenly they're high school students, teenagers. You always imagine yourself to be at a certain place in your career or in your work. And you don't feel satisfied. You haven't gotten there. And suddenly you begin to think and examine and question yourself. I've studied so hard in my life. I've worked so hard in my life. And this is all I'll ever be. And that's when you start imagining, I think I need a career change. That will make things better for me. Or I'll go out and buy a Porsche. That will make things better for me but as we all know everyone has a dream we have an imagination of how life should be and at the early stages of our lives when you're and for those of us who are about to enter into college you are going to establish a major and you think to yourself okay with this i can do this but for those of us who are now in that stage of life where we have accomplished a certain amount of status or achievement, you never really get to exactly what you dreamt about. Or if you did, you find that it isn't all that you thought it would be, at least in terms of your own contentment and satisfaction, which is why it is so strange. And yet it comes up this suddenness of within your forties to fifties. And you think, I don't feel satisfied. We should not be surprised by that. We shouldn't think that there's something abnormal. In fact, it's sort of the recurrence of what life is like for all of us when we are trying to pursue a satisfaction outside of God himself, which we'll never find. Our heart longs to belong, to have identity, to have purpose, to have meaning. And the Bible gives us one answer and the world another. The Bible says, You can't find that outside of Christ. He's the only one. And the world says, well, Jesus, yes, but maybe something else. If you're a Christian or even Christian-like, it's, yeah, you can go to church and you can read the Bible and pray and do all these things, but it's that plus your career or where you go to school or whom you marry, what type of children you have. That identity wrapped up in Jesus plus something makes us discontented. We'll always have longing. And that longing just gets played out in all sorts of ways from the, the desires for the perfect obedience of our children. Well, we want a loving, caring spouse who never fails. Never fails me. Or a job that is perfectly fulfilling. How many of us are always looking for fulfillment in our career? And when we don't get it, we look to the next place, the next job, We're still hunting, pursuing, and never finding it. Surely, sometimes you're at the DMV and you're waiting for on that really long line, and you think, why can't the government be more efficient? Everything in this world, to some extent, falls short of our expectations. Paul tells us that you can be satisfied in this world, but it has nothing to do with your circumstances. Which is exactly the opposite of what we think or what we're taught to believe, that it's all about our circumstances. If I'm single, then once I get married, or I have a boyfriend or girlfriend, then once I get married, and if I have children, if I have older children who are obedient and who achieve a certain level of success, and then once I, all the kids leave home, and at that point, then I'll finally be able to live life. And then once I get healthy enough, Once I have more time, it's never ending. And so contentment in that instance does seem impossible. But Paul says here, I can do all things. I can be content. Even in all things, it is possible. So the question is, well, how do you do that? We keep on going in that verse, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So I'm going to focus on the effect of contentment. The word strengthened in the New Testament takes on this idea that it's, a, it's sort of a, a passive. And that's why, even though it's active, but there's, a, there's someone outside strengthening. It's not yourself lifting weights. It's an external strengthening upon you. Paul describes it this way. He uses the same word in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. Listen to what he says. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. I mean, if you look at that word and that word in that context, that's a really difficult circumstance that Paul is facing. He has been abandoned by people who had been committed to him. And I think we've all, to some extent, faced the responsibility of having a task at hand and then having a team of people. But imagine... You're leading this team of people to finish this task, and suddenly in the midst of it, everyone starts floating away. They they just start saying, ah, it's not important to me. They start giving up. And eventually you're by yourself. That's discouraging. We've all faced that to some extent. It's frustrating and discouraging, and it's hard to be content in that place. But Paul says that he has been strengthened by the Lord who has stood by me. It is possible to be content even though it is so difficult. That's why this verse, verse 13 of chapter 4, is so important for us. It's more difficult to be content in Paul's circumstance where everyone has abandoned him than to run a marathon. And I know you think, no, I, I could never run a marathon. But try being content all the time in all circumstances. And you will understand how hard it is. We need verse 13 in the context of contentment, not in the context of being able to move a boulder from one place to another. Contentment seems so hard because you look around and you see other people who are happy and seemingly content where everything seems to prosper for people, even evil people, even people who aren't good people. And you look at them and you see their so-called trouble-free life where successes seem to come so easily to them. They don't study hard for tests. They go into interviews and they get the job immediately. They don't. Their intellect just seems to be off the charts. And when you're in that place where everyone else seems to be getting uh, something that prospers them and you seem empty, alone, dissatisfied, that is when contentment seems impossible. Which is why Paul tells us, again, we're going to go back to verse 11. He says, this is how strengthening happens. For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And again, the focus on that verb, learned, in the past tense, it's that this has been a lifelong process, a lifetime of struggle, where he has been abandoned where he's been stoned, shipwrecked, mocked. He has faced so many times of trial and the temptations to feel abandoned, to feel left alone. In the midst of trial, in those places, is where contentment comes. Contentment comes. And if you don't experience the the will and the trust in the midst of trial... It's hard to understand contentment, to really understand it and to appreciate it, experience it. When you feel most anxious, most covetous, in those moments you have to ask yourself, is there something or someone in my life that I desire more than God? Because that's what those feelings reveal, is that you actually are desiring someone or something other than God himself. You are placing your trust in someone or something other than God. And in those places, if you're not struggling and wrestling, you will never learn contentment. And you cannot be strengthened if you don't learn contentment. So then, the last part really of this message is, how do we do it? What does it look like? There are so many different ways. I, I've, I'm going to list a number of different ways of how do we get to do this. But uh, it's again, it's just a sampling of it because there are so many. Paul says that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And the power of contentment in the midst of low times and high times, plenty and want, or as so many of our wedding vows went, in sickness and in health, and prosperity, Poverty and prosperity. How can you be content and fight the battle of anxiety? What Paul calls in chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, that a peace of God which transcends understanding. How do we get to this place where the power of contentment is realized? I'm going to list a bunch of different ways. First is admit weakness immediately. Admit weakness immediately. It is so important to not struggle with your pride and just simply let it go. There's a, many of you know I'm a Yankees fan, and um, there's a player on the Yankees. His name is Miguel Andujar. He's a, he was second to rookie of the year last year. This past year, in the beginning of the year, he dove back to third base on a pickoff play and he tore his labrum, a slight tear. And so the doctors and physical therapists initially said, try to rehab it by, we'll go to rehab, and then you could go and play. And so he did that, and he came back, and during his 30 at-bats, he hit, he had three hits, which is an 80 average, which in baseball is terrible. It's very, very bad. He went back on the injured reserve list, and there he they decided to do surgery, to operate. And... I'm a fan. I like the Yankees. I like watching them. And I like this player. And it was frustrating as a fan to watch this player who initially had an injury, didn't really deal with it, and then came back and had to be lost for the year. And the question that many people ask is, why didn't he just get the surgery immediately? It could have saved him a lot more time and heartache and trouble, as well as the team. I do think that One thing we have to realize is that when you get the diagnosis wrong and simply try to live life, you experience so much frustration and discouragement. And if we could only stop and examine our hearts first and recognize that there is a core problem in our souls, that when we lash out at our spouse, when we are frustrated, when we're irritable, when there's, when you wake up in the morning and, you, or if you ha- struggle with insomnia, you can't sleep. That's a, that's a symptom. There's a problem in your soul. It's not just physiological. Sometimes it is. Sometimes you, you have sleep apnea, but many times it isn't sleep apnea. Many times it's anxiety and that anxiety has to be dealt with by you. And the beginning part of dealing with that is recognizing that there is a problem with your soul. And there is a weakness towards contentment. That we're not satisfied ultimately with God. Again, in Psalm 51, David confesses his adultery and his murder. But he says, before you alone and you only, O Lord, have I sinned. The realization that any expression of sin is first and foremost not against another person. It's against God himself. And until I have wrestled deeply with that as my core reality of what I'm struggling with, I cannot ever understand contentment. So first and foremost, come before the living God and confess your sins. Admit that you struggle with worshiping and placing your hope in something or someone other than God himself. Secondly is persist in his word. Persist in his word. How many of us have given up reading the Bible? Reading his word. How many of us have given up meditating? I really want to encourage you not simply to read the Bible, but actually stop and actually think about what you read. It's too easy to read without actually engaging our minds. And sometimes we need to slow down. Sometimes we might even need to read less so that we make sure that after reading Scripture, you always ask the question, God, show me through your word how I must think about you and how I must live differently today as a result of this word that I have read. And if you stop and meditate and think and pray and consider and memorize, it will change you. It will impact you. Read it on the BART. Read it on your shuttle buses. Read it at all. Read it on waiting online at the supermarket. Initiate Bible studies. Join together with other people to grow in his word. You know, right now for the young adults with crossroads, we're studying Romans. And I appeal to some of you who have gotten into the habit of not meeting together to study God's word. That's a loss for you. It's We have to engage in the study of God's word directly. It's so important to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The battle for contentment is fought mostly by the powerful word of God. Listen to these texts that just make this so clear. Colossians 3.16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. Has to dwell, has to sink deep. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6.17 calls God's word the sword of the spirit. It's an offensive weapon against our heart that is so prone to wander and pursue other things other than God. Hebrews 4.12 describes this word as alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. In John 17, 17, 17, Jesus says his word is truth. Truth combats lies. The lie is, you know, if you just work harder at your job, you can gain greater satisfaction for your life. Or if your spouse is not satisfying you emotionally or physically, then maybe you need to look elsewhere. There are all sorts of lies that we face when it comes to contentment. It is God's word that provides truth to that. Psalm 119, 9 through 11. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Until you begin to see that every other pursuit is a broken cistern, as Jeremiah describes, you will think those things satisfy, but... You will never learn contentment. And it is primarily through God's word that we learn contentment. If you've ever seen a life straw, it's a, you know, sometimes it's sort of one of those survival straws. You use it in desperate situations where if you go to a river and you drink out of it, if you have nothing to drink, you're going to use that to try to filter out as much as possible. I see scripture as sort of a a spiritual life straw for your soul. It is... The means by which you get to a stagnant, disgusting pond of water. And you are dying of thirst. And there's no other hope but to try to drink that from that. But you know if you drink that, that is so dangerous. You will throw up and get dehydrated anyway. But you have this life straw. And this life straw, as you drink from it, even though it doesn't filter out everything, but it gets to you at least to where you can drink this water. God's word... Filters out all of the stuff that we experience every day. All the stagnant, disgusting, filthy water that is all around us. Some of it is not disgusting. It doesn't look disgusting. And I can imagine a very clean, if you've ever gone to just hiking and you'll see, looks looks like clean water, but if you were to just go and take your mouth to the ground... You don't know what's upstream, what's coming down that stream, and you don't want to drink it. Just because it looks good doesn't mean you should automatically think it's clean. There are so many things that we have in this world. Even, again, a spouse, a child, a career, a house, a vacation, those are good things. But unless it's filtered through God's word, which if we're not regularly exposing ourselves to it and imbibing it and helping it and having it transform our mind, we're not going to know how to process what we're experiencing. So this is why biblical preaching is important. If you ever, I hope we here preach the Bible. If you visit a church when you're traveling, I hope you visit a church that actually preaches the Bible. If you ever leave this area and move to a new place, finding a church where it preaches the Bible is important. But also spending time with it alone and then with others around you. Next is hate sin much. Hate sin much. This past week with at Crossroads, we were studying Romans 7. We all agreed after studying that text that that's Christian Paul who's speaking there. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, Study Romans 7. But I want to read to you Romans 7.15. Because in there is the battle that Paul is waging with his own soul. And he says, For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul loves Jesus at this point. He does. But he is battling sin, his own heart. He's struggling with it. And he's losing that battle sometimes. All of us, when we were studying this passage this past week, we admitted that we like this text mainly because we're sort of like this, and we think, wow, if Paul struggles with sin like this, I'm so glad he understands me. (laughs) He understands where we've been, what we deal with as a Christian, but he doesn't just let it lie and say, oh, I struggle with sin, oh, well, I'm going to keep on living my life. He says, the very thing I hate, I hate the fact that I struggle with this, but I do struggle. That hating is important. Once you start becoming indifferent to your own heart and how it manifests itself in life, if you think, well, it's okay, just a little worried. Again, we like to use euphemisms to describe sin. Jerry Bridges wrote a whole book on it called Respectable Sins. Worry. Oh, I'm just a little late. White lie when in actuality I woke up late. I ran into traffic, but actually I woke up late. And I don't want to look bad to my boss, so I don't want to say I slept in. I actually said traffic. Traffic sounds so nice, so reasonable. Makes us look good. Um, it's easy to say that we're a little bothered versus we're angry. But really we're angry. We just don't want to say that. It makes us sound bad. All of that makes us temper sin as though it's not, which then makes what we're doing before God not that significant, which makes God less significant and us more powerful, more good. And in that place, you never experience contentment. Again, the goal is contentment. But if you're not honest with yourself and with God, you'll never find contentment. We have to actually hate complaining. We have to hate the fact that we grumble or we gossip. We have to hate the fact that we are so um, easily struck with self-pity, feeling sorry for ourselves. And you know when you feel sorry for yourself, it's so hard to get out of that spiral, right? When people, someone else comes saying, stop feeling sorry for yourself. You feel so offended by that. But we need that. We need to hate the fact that that is part of our hearts. Until you hate it a lot, enough, only then can you feel the freedom from it. Start to experience freedom. We have to feel disgusted by the fact that we envy other people. No excuses. And only then can we have freedom from it. Next is we give thanks in all circumstances. First Thessalonians 5.18. A lack of contentment is a failure to see how good and gracious God is to you. That's what that is. Kara Joyner is a mom of a two-year-old, and she's a counselor. And she writes about her child insightfully, and she says this. She, he had just woken up and come into our room. I sat up in bed and suggested something for breakfast. When he responded with, I want to go, mommy. Go where, I asked. In the car, please. I want to go. He ran out to the living room and tugged on the door. Please, mommy, let's go. In that moment, a mirror was raised to reveal the unsettling reflection of one of my greatest struggles. And I suddenly saw the patterns of discontentment spread throughout his day-to-day behavior. I saw it in his impatience with staying home. I saw it in his disregard for toys, books, and games. I saw it in his overall fear of missing out. How did such a little person learn to view life this way? I knew the answer the instant the words left his mouth. I taught him. It's very honest, but it's true. Parents, if you see a child of any age acting in a way in which you think, how could my child be like that? The answer is, you taught it. You taught her. There's something internal too. There is sin and depravity in that child. But they learn a lot from their parents, much. And it's always shocking and surprising, isn't it, when they say something and do something and you think, where did you learn that? And they haven't even gone to school yet. Don't be so surprised. It's in our own hearts. Our lack of contentment, our children experience it. And you don't even realize that they're experiencing it. Sadly, when tragedy strikes, a loved one gets a dreaded disease or even dies, only then do we wish we had what we once had. Did you ever notice that? Is that when you have everything... And you're not giving thanks. You're always imagining and looking out and seeing what everyone else has and think, I want that and I don't have it. But when tragedy strikes and suffering comes, most people in that place say, I wish it could go back to the way that it once was. I wish it could be like that again. Why do we have to wait for trial to come? Paul tells us in 1st Thessalonians 5:58 5, 5, you have to do that today now if you want to gain contentment start by saying what do i have to give thanks for list all of the items down and consider pray over it and give thanks to god we are rich i'm not just talking materially we have we're so blessed but oh how much turmoil and emotional struggle we face simply because we're looking to something out there that makes me happy and disregarding all the treasures. Discipline yourself to do this. It is a discipline. It's the discipline of the mind. It is what Paul says, the renewing of your mind. Next, pray for those suffering locally and globally. Again, Paul says in First Thessalonians 5.18, pray continually. And I want to take that and push it further. I was reading a book by Pastor Andy Davis, and he wrote a book called The Power of Christian Contentment. And he sees the critical value in helping us with contentment when we pray for those in real need, such as the persecuted church, the elderly. You know that some of the, um, the high schoolers were going to a, a senior home to care for the elderly and no, uh, one week, we've done it once. We're going to go again. And I really want to encourage you, don't give up on that. It's important for your soul. It's not just important for them. It's important for you. Because by actually caring for the sick, the dying, the elderly, what we're doing is we're recognizing need. And in that need, suddenly all of those burdens that you feel of wanting things to fulfill your desires... When you see real need, those desires melt away. That's why I do think that there is an incredible power to going to places like Africa, where Tracy Sharp is today, where our teams go in Zimbabwe and the, the communities we support in Pumaisi and also Mishineka in Malawi. Every person I know who has gone comes back and rarely do they think as soon as they get off that airplane, take a step foot onto the ground back at home and say, I really want to remodel my bathroom. I mean, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. I really need to buy a new car right now. theres You suddenly begin to realize that we have so much. We are so blessed. We have to pray. The more you pray for what God is doing through broken people around the world, when you pray unceasingly, your heart becomes strangely satisfied and content and thankful. Next is serve in thankless ministries and tasks. Again from Andy Davis, he writes the more challenging they are to your creature comforts and worldly concerns, the better they can purge you of discontent. I'm thankful for Jim and Sarah Choi who lead a group to go to San Francisco for city impact. And, uh, i know my wife is gone and they go and to really run down homes it's very much like going to do holy home visits in africa here in in the bay area in san francisco and a lot of the people there are on drugs or homeless or whatever the smells are not so nice but it's in those places that just simply dropping a meal off at home, at a at someone's home where it's uncomfortable and awkward and it's It feels, quote, unsafe or insecure in those places where we experience the mercies of God in our lives. It's hard to be discontent and frustrated when you're caring for people. If you're struggling with depression, the way to get out of it is care for people. Fight that feeling by actually going out and ministering. Do things that are you don't get a lot of credit for. That's why I do think sometimes putting chairs away is a great opportunity for your own soul to be satisfied. You might not think it, but it is. Putting signs up. Because all those things keeps the spotlight away from us and reminds us that God himself matters more than everything. And when we can give glory to him, whether we eat or drink or set up chairs, or visit the homeless, or go to Africa, we look to him. Surround yourself with people striving for contentment. It is the anti-social media syndrome. Social media today, and Instagram, and Facebook, and Snapchat, is all about looking at all the things that other people have and do, and saying, I wish I could do that or have that that's what causes discontentment and covetousness but find people around you who are committed to struggle to strive to fight to battle your flesh find people who are going to say i'm not going to settle for just being satisfied with what, with allowing myself to be indifferent to these struggles i'm going to fight Find these people who are, and that's where you find a group who are going to pray for the lost. Pray for missions. Pray for the persecuted church. Pray for and care for ministry. Doing those things that are looking where people are joining together. Be influenced by people like that. All of these things are tools. But there's one thing that actually is clearly exhibited in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, and it is this. Embrace your life, your new life in Jesus, every moment of every day. It is the complete idea of recognizing that we can do all things through him, through Jesus. He is the foundation of every ounce of contentment we can have. It's wrapped up in him. Paul described it also in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the way we know this to be true is how Paul lays it out in Philippians. In chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul describes Jesus emptying himself, making himself nothing. He became discontented, you might say. Emptied so that we would be full. So that we would abound. When Jesus was on the cross, there were seven sayings that he had. One of them was, I thirst. I personally don't think Jesus said that just randomly because he was physically thirsty. The reason why is that if if he has, first of all, anything that Jesus said, that is recorded in scripture is not unincidental. It is, it's um, that is incidental. It actually has a purpose. And when Jesus said, I thirst, he was not just physically thirsty. He was, he was spiritually thirsty. We see this mostly in the forsakenness of Christ. When he said, Iloi, loi, lama my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That thirst that he professes verbally is what he experienced spiritually as he experienced the separation from the Holy Father. And he does that. He experiences the parching of his soul for me and you. For discontented, dissatisfied, parched souls that are always looking to find satisfaction in something that will never satisfy And so Jesus had to undergo exactly what we do for himself so that he could truly satisfy us, so that he could be the living water for our souls. And so when Paul is saying, I can do this through him, it is of everything that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, on his behalf. And when we come back to that realization time and time again, when you experience the struggle, when the sin is there, when you feel thanklessness and your heart is dry and you feel as though something out there is going to satisfy you, it takes a discipline to go back to what God has accomplished for us. I want to close with this. It is hard to be able to tell in the midst of tumult and change, God's plan and purpose. But when you see it, oh, how lovely and beautiful it is. When we first bought our building, and uh, it's not, an, you know, for some of you, you can recall it. It's an office building in the downstairs, and it had all sorts of weird office structures. And I remember when we first took our first tour, it was hard to imagine a church being there. Because all you saw were little rooms everywhere. I felt that. It was hard for me. And it took people with vision. to. Some people can see that. An architect can often see that. But I can't. But all, as so many of you know, as we started destroying those walls two weeks ago, and if you look today, it's completely empty. And then once the walls all came down, you could see it. You could imagine being there worshiping. And we, Lord willing, we will be next year. This will be the last year we're going to be parking at Bishop Ranch. We hope. <laughs> but I couldn't see it. It was so hard until the demo was done. And then you can see it. Why I think so often this is our lives. Exactly. We clutter our lives with all these things and we're, we're just, it has so much clutter and things that don't satisfy. And what God is saying is, trust me, I'm clearing it all away. But you have to believe in me. You have to believe that my son paid this penalty, this work. He bore the wrath. He bore the thirst that you have, that thirst that longs to be quenched. He did that. He was thirsty so that you never will be thirsty again. And if you trust His plan, His will, His work for you, if you believe it, and if you remember it, and if you concentrate on it, if you remember His word that pronounces it, if you sing about it, if you gather together, when that happens, you will be satisfied. You will be. But you have to trust me. There is no greater power that you have to be content than for you to know that Jesus satisfies your soul and he paid a heavy price for that to be true i hope you enjoy him today tomorrow and forever let's pray father we give thanks to you i'm afraid we don't give thanks to you enough we have many reasons to remember your goodness your kindness, but most of all because of Jesus, who on that cross, who suffered, bled, and was thirsty. And when you were thirsty, Lord, and when the Roman soldiers offered that sponge of vinegar, Lord, you turned it away because No amount of water would ever be able to quench that thirst. Because Lord, you bore on that cross all of our covetousness. Every time we have looked to a a husband or a wife or a child or a career or some automobile or a house or a reputation, or a friend. Every time we have believed that something other than you will satisfy our longings. Jesus, that's what you bore on that cross. You were thirsty. So that we would never be thirsty again. And I pray, O oh Lord. That we would not buy into the lies and the schemes of the enemy and of our own souls. That so falter and fail. Will never Satisfy us. Thy loving kindness is better than life. May we wholeheartedly believe that to be true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.